Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Unabridged. Today, we are talking about James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk, which is our March book club pick. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are really working on boosting our Patreon presence this year. If you support us for just $5 a month, you can get access to an extra episode each month. So this month, we released a discussion of the pilot of the Heartstopper adaptation which is available on Netflix. And then next month, which is super relevant if you're listening to this, we are going to look at the adaptation If Beale Street Could Talk, the film that was out a few years ago. So we think we have some great content over there. We have a few different tiers, so you can check that out if you'd like some bookish merch instead of just an episode. But yeah, we would love your support. We are just working to cover the costs of this passion project that we love and put so much time in and Patreon is helping us to do that. So we appreciate any of your support over there. All right, we are going to get started with our episode with our bookish check in. Ashley, what have you been reading? Well, Jen just mentioned the adaptation of Heartstopper. And I just finished this. So I'm cheating just a little bit. But I had to talk about I had to talk about Alice Osman's Heartstopper series. So just finished the fourth one of those. There are four volumes that you can read now. There's going to be a fifth one. And it sounds like that's the end of the series. Jen, do you think that's I think that's true? right? Yes. Okay. So I wanted to share it as my bookish check in because I like I said, just finished this last one. But I mean, this is what I have been reading. So I have, <laughs> I have several other books that I'm also reading. But this is the one that has been grabbing my attention every day. I was telling Jen how I was reading it on my phone and <laughs> would find that every spare moment, I'm like standing outside the bathroom waiting for my child and I'm reading Heartstopper. So I just I just thought it was phenomenal. And so this is the story of Charlie Spring, and it focuses on how he, at the beginning of the first one, so I'm just going to talk about volume one to give a little overview mm-hmm. for my check-in, but he, we know that he is gay. He has been outed. That was outside of his control. And after being outed, he experienced some pretty severe bullying, and then this is time has already passed when we start the story. So we kind of know that is his backstory. He has some great friends, but he also has had some hard times. And it's very much the story of him getting to know Nick, who is a rugby player at the school. He's one year older, and they had never had any interaction. And then they start to get to know each other. And it's really just the development of them coming to know each other. And I think... Like I said, I'm only I only want to say that much for a plot, but I do want to say the reason I wanted to share it on the biggest check-in and why I just found it so amazing is I just think it really shows relationships. It shows how hard it is to navigate like private versus public life and all all facets of that, like both, you know, Charlie with his sexuality, 
but also like family relationships and like what that looks like and how what your family's like on the inside is different than what your friends see. And so I think all that stuff is handled. And then as the story unfolds and you get farther into it, there's a tremendous exploration also of mental health that I thought was just handled in such a gentle and compassionate and nuanced way. And so I just loved it. So I had to share that for my biggest check-in, even though I've already finished because I feel like I want to be like, stop what you're doing (laughs) and go read this book. And also like for kids, I mean, for teens, I, what I loved is that while this is very much a story of a romance, it shows that that's not everything and that romance, that love doesn't fix everything and that just because you have problems in your life doesn't mean there's anything wrong with any of your relationships. And so I just felt like I want kids to see those like real portrayals of friendships and of romance relationships that aren't always like happily ever after stories. And not this one's very uplifting and very, um, I mean, I felt very giddy for lots of it. But I also feel like Osman does this really great job, in my opinion, as you're getting into it of seeing that life is not just meet somebody and then everything's great, you know? And so like that's I loved that for myself, but I think it's important for teens to see that too. So I had to share that one. I snuck that in, (laughs) even though I finished, but that's Alice Oseman's Heartstopper. Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. And yes, that sort of makes me want to go back and reread it. I I might do that actually before book five comes out. So, or as book five comes out and then, you know, there's more in the Heartstopper world with some connecting characters. So I want to read those novels as well. But there is something about the presentation of it, the graphic novel, the drawings, the illustrations that really drives it home as well. What about you, Jen? What are you reading? I am almost done with Lynn Painter's The Do-Over. So I will say we're recording in February, and this has been a perfect read for this month. Lynn Painter is one of those authors I've been seeing around forever. My friend on Instagram, Mary Chase, sings her praises all the time. She writes both adult and YA romance. And The Do-Over is a time loop YA romance story set on Valentine's Day. So Emily Hornby wakes up. She has on her agenda this whole plan for her Valentine's Day, which includes saying I love you for the first time to her boyfriend of three months on their three month anniversary. And she has she has this great internship for summer. So she has some some things associated with that. She just has this perfect day planned out. And from the very first moment, (laughs) it goes wrong. Uh, She (laughs) lives with her dad and her stepmom and her younger siblings, her her half-brothers or twins who are toddlers. And she has to get out of the shower early because one of them needs to use the bathroom. She has a wreck on the way to school. And the guy she hits, who is her chemistry lab partner, doesn't recognize her and is a complete jerk to her. Oh, no. She gets to school and she finds out that the internship that she has been planning on being her key to getting a scholarship to college since her parents' finances were devastated with their divorce that they made a mistake and she is not the recipient of it after all. And then she catches her boyfriend kissing his ex-girlfriend. Oh no. So nightmare day. And she gets through the day somehow goes to sleep and wakes up and it's Valentine's day again. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you know how time loop <laughs> stories go, right? So it takes a few days for her to realize that she really is going to have to live this day over and over. And then she tries to live it perfectly because she thinks that that is the key to getting out of it. And you can see she has some great friends. So you can see how the friends are sort of her anchor. She has this grandmother she dearly loves who, when her parents have been somewhat absent, her grandmother has been a source of strength for her. But she has to figure out how she is going to react to everything. And the thing I really love about this is you see how Emily's way of making it through life has been to be perfect and to not be a burden on anyone. Her parents' divorce was really ugly. And so she always felt as if when they were fighting, they were fighting over her. And so it has been her goal to be their perfect daughter so she never causes any fights. And she has taken that approach with her whole life. And you see how that served her, that, yeah, people like her or just don't notice her. But she is very rarely speaking up for herself or doing what she actually wants to do. And so that is this realization that begins to develop as she relives the worst Valentine's Day ever over and over and over again. Yeah, I'm really loving it. I've been listening to the audiobook, which is narrated by Jesse Valinsky and is fabulous. I imagine it would be great in print as well. But it definitely made me want to read more of Painter's work because I think her sense of character is excellent. And the romance that is developing, which is not with Emily's boyfriend, is really sweet as well. And you can see why she comes to value... Yeah, the the way this other relationship is developing more than the one that she has with her boyfriend, which seems on the surface to be perfect, but is absolutely not. So yeah, that's Lynn Painter's The Do-Over, and I am just loving it so much. Gosh, Jen, that sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to be listening to that one very soon. Yes, I've been listening on script, so if anyone else is into audio, I highly recommend that. And then, like I said, I'm sure the print would be great as well, because the writing is really strong, so... All right. Well, from those two giddy bookish check-ins, we are going to switch gears in a major way to talk about a very serious book, which is James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm just going to read the synopsis from the publisher. Told through the eyes of Tish, a 19-year-old girl, in love with Fawny, a young sculptor who is the father of her child, Baldwin's story mixes the sweet and the sad. Tish and Fawny have pledged to get married, but Fawny is falsely accused of a terrible crime and imprisoned. Their families set out to clear his name, and as they face an uncertain future, the young lovers experience a kaleidoscope of emotions, affection, despair, and hope. In a love story that evokes the blues where passion and sadness are inevitably intertwined, Baldwin's created two characters so alive and profoundly realized that they are unforgettably ingrained in the American psyche. So that, that is a lot to live up to. But that is the synopsis. So we're just going to start with our overall impressions. Ashley, what did you think of If Beale Street Could Talk? I thought that this is a very powerful book that, I mean, actually it's quite short. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising to me how short it is for how much gets covered. But I feel like Baldwin very quickly paints a really vivid picture of what systemic oppression looks like and how that affects young people in America. And so we see vividly this young couple who has struggles, but the struggles are 
things that they can overcome together and that they can, we see them making progress. We see their love developing, their relationship developing. We see them moving from childhood into adulthood. And then they get sideswiped by this unthinkable set of circumstances that really there's no simple way out of, none of which should have ever happened. And so I just feel like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a phenomenal book, and I think it's really heartbreaking, as it should be, because I think it shows how flawed the American justice system is, how stacked it is against people, not all people, certain people. I think that because they are Black, because they don't have a lot of money, because they are young, because their family structures, particularly for Fani, are already... You know, he has a complex family. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into his yes. family. But because of all of that, you know, they, they just all of these things, none of which have anything to do with any action either of them have taken. Mm-hmm. Because of all of that, they're in this horrific and unfathomable situation, and it feels like there's no solution. Mm-hmm. What about you, John? What's your overall impression? Yeah, I was both blown away and devastated. I I mean, it was published in 1974. And I just checked that date, but it still feels I mean, it feels like with a few tweaks, it could be set today very easily, which says something huge, I think. I've read a little Baldwin before we chose this one partially because of our unabridged podcast reading challenge. And we have on there a classic work by a BIPOC author. And Baldwin, I think the books I've read of his before are equally powerful in addressing systemic racism and what it means to be black in the United States. And so the subject matter didn't surprise me, but wow, it it just, as I was reading, there's just this sense of dread that pervades the book because we know very early on that Fani is in prison. It takes a while for it to be revealed that he is in prison because he's been accused of rape and the way the police officer is involved in all of that. But yeah, there's just this sense of dread because you see from the beginning the lack of agency that has caused them to be in this position and that there's no way for them to get agency. And they have some people who are going to help them. You know, there's, there's Arnold Hayward, the white lawyer who is on their side and is doing his best to help them. And once Tish is able to get past her sort of lack of trust, she sees that he has great intentions, but he can only address certain things. He, he cannot overturn all of the wrongs that have been done to them. And it's just this sense of helplessness as you're reading the book and see it sort of heading toward this end that feels inevitable. And then a questioning why it feels inevitable. So yeah, I just, I'm glad I read it. It as anyone of you who's listening knows, it is not an easy read. It's not meant to be an easy read. It shouldn't be an easy read. But I do think it's powerful. And I can see why it receives such praise. And Baldwin is an amazing author. So yeah, I I know that just went all over the place. But yeah, he is powerful in conveying these people's situation. And you come to care about the characters so much, which of course makes it even worse. So brilliant book. I don't want to diminish it by saying, yeah, I really liked it. So because yeah, I think it's, it is powerful, and it is well worth reading. All right, well, we are going to dig a little bit more into trying to highlight just one thing that worked for us. Ashley, what's one thing about If Beale Street Could Talk that worked for you? 
something that was really striking to me, and I think this is part of how I think in the description it says something about like it is there are parts that are hopeful even though it's dire Mm -hmm. the situation is dire and I think a lot of what makes us continue to feel hope is that particularly Tisha's family are they are so driven to do whatever it takes to get him out and so I think that that fire that is lit within for her and for her mother and her sister and her father and the way that we see that there's nothing that they won't do is really notable. Mm -hmm. I think I really admire them in the story. And I think the part that I wanted to focus on specifically is where Sharon goes to Puerto Rico. And I just think like that entire section of the book I thought was – fascinating, evocative. I think that we, uh, up until that point, we see Sharon in a lot of ways just from Tisha's Mm -hmm. eyes. And then we, as she goes down there and we see that story unfold, we watch her. Again, I mean, I think about somebody who probably has never traveled before, who is going down to a place where very few people are speaking English She's navigating this system she knows nothing about, and she's going to find this person who also has been manipulated, has been hurt, has suffered, and she's trying to persuade her to do something about it, to care about another person. And I think a lot of what I found so powerful, I mean, that whole that whole section I just thought was really yeah. remarkable. I think both because I really admire her. I mean, I just, we see her courage and we see her determination and we see that she's willing to, again, to do whatever it takes. And yet we also see exactly what you said, Jen, that she has no agency, that she has no ability to bring about change. And that even knowing that, She's not blind to that, even knowing that she's still willing to go the distance and to try to do the thing. And that when she goes to the nightclub and that doesn't work, then she goes to find the woman herself and to try to change it. And yet also, I think what is striking is we want to curse the the Mrs. Rogers. We want to curse this girl for not being willing to go back and change her story, for not being willing to go to trial. And yet we completely understand as the reader why? Right. And how she's not the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I think like that's what's so illuminating also is just that like even though of course she never should have said it was funny if she wasn't sure it was white people who brought in the people to stand there in the lineup. Fonny's the only black person. Mm-hmm. She knew the person was black. She's already traumatized. Yeah. She already is a victim. And she's having to stand there and say, of course, she's going to pick him. Mm -hmm. And then why on earth would she want to go back to the mainland and deal with that? I mean, I just think so. I felt like that whole section is a bit different from the main focus of the story, which is very much about Tish and Fani. And yet I think it's another layer that I found really enriched the story because it showed just how complicated all this is. Well, and I think, too, when you contrast Tish's family with Fonny's family, I mean, that scene when they invite the Hunts over to give them the news that Tish is pregnant and the way 
that Fani's mother reacts and the way his sisters react. And to see, I mean, it's so ugly, first of all. But then the way Sis stands up for her sister and for Fani. And you see they have completely taken him in to their hearts. And so they are going to stand up for him even against his own family. And, of course, they're standing up for Tish as well. But, yeah, I thought that was so powerful. It was a horrible scene. It was. It felt just awful to read it. And yet again, you see this, this loyalty and this hope and this trust in human beings and this, this sense that they love each other so much. And so maybe they didn't follow the way Mrs. Hunt would want everything to happen. But yeah, I love the way when Tish tells her mom that she is pregnant, the way she handles it and the way her dad and sister handle it. And so, yeah, I think the contrast of those two families is really powerful and illuminating just how much Tish's family is going to do for Fani and for Tish. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I we both have tons of quotes we wanted to use, but I, one of them <laughs> I really found striking that I'm going to sneak in now mm-hmm. is just where Tish is thinking about her sister and her mom who are trying to help her go rest so that they can plot and plan what they're going to do next to try to help him. And the the line was just, we were his family now, the only family he had. And now everything was up to us. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it is that sense that, you know, they recognize what the hunts will not do. Although Frank is also a remarkable character caught in a horrific set of circumstances, a lot of which he has no power over. But, you know, in general, outside of his, Vonnie's relationship with his father, he's got all this... All this stuff going on. And I mean, like you said, Jen, I mean, that it was awful to read. It was really painful. And it also was like absurd. I mean, there were parts that just felt absurd. And yet they are within the context of what his mother is like. And again, I think another thing I really appreciated about the sisters and the way all that shakes out is like Tish comes to see that they do care Mm -hmm. about some things, but then they are so damaged by their relationship with their mother that that does affect them. But I thought all that was interesting how, you know, later on, like she does feel some compassion for the sisters, yeah. which is like hard for me to, it, it, it just shows how Tish is willing to see people as whole people and that they are complicated. And, you know, I, so I just really appreciated that because I felt like I could not extend that same compassion toward the sisters that she was able to extend. And yet when Adrian is in crisis and really wanting to know where Frank is and is so frantic that Tish could just like see the whole picture in a way that I really admired, particularly thinking about how young she is. Yes. Yes. Um, Jen, what about you? What was one thing that worked for you? I'm not sure the rest of the story would have worked if we didn't believe deeply in Tish and Fawny as a couple, as in their love. And I'll do the same thing you did and sneak in this quote uh, when Tish says, it's a miracle to realize that somebody loves you. And I think you see the way they have this deep friendship that begins when they are children and that that friendship just grows into this deep love. And the moments when she talks about seeing the shadow of his missing tooth, when he smiles, that they have this knowledge of each other and this vision of each other that sees all parts of who 
they are, both who the other is and who they are in relation to the other, that in some ways they they have defined themselves together, I think is so beautiful. And, you know, Tish says she's not very pretty. And Fani just doesn't care. Like, in fact, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like he just sees beyond the surface. Both of them see beyond the other surface to see who they are within. And Tish is strong. I mean, I think yeah. when you were talking about how she sees that his sisters and she so often sees that people are reacting out of fear and she does that sometimes, but she doesn't do it very often. And I think part of that is because her relationship with Fani is so strong and she knows that she has him as an anchor, but also that she needs to serve as that for him when it talks about her going to visit him and the way that represents not just her visiting him, but all the people who love him and that how important that is for him to just be reminded, not only that Tish loves him, but that the fact that she quit her job so she can be there to see him means that other people love him too and have made it possible for her to make that sac- that financial sacrifice when they desperately need money. I mean, the complexity of their relationship is the heart of the book. And I think you have to have that heart there to make you feel so deeply all of the wrong that has been done to them. And so I just think that worked beautifully for me, the structure of the book and the way we see both the present and the past interchangeably and the way Baldwin weaves through the beginnings of their relationship as we're seeing this end that it's come to, I think just reinforces all of that. And yeah, I I just think all of that was so beautifully done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Oh my gosh. But it makes me ache. It makes my heart ache. So yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I do feel like that's what he does so well. It just shows the, like you said, the lack of agency and the way that, Everything is structured so that they don't have financial security and that that financial security would enable them to have more agency. Mm -hmm. And so it's exactly, there's just so many things, again, that have nothing to do with any actions that any of them have taken Mm -hmm. that lead to this situation where he is stuck in jail. Well, and then when their fathers are doing some things that are illegal to try to get money, and then I just kept thinking, oh, my gosh, they're going to get arrested, too. I mean, I just it just felt like it was this, you know, which they had cards. to do. Right. Because, again, what can they, they have no choice oh except. Gosh. Right. So it's it, is, it is over and over again. That is just waiting to all tumble down. I mean, that's what it felt like, just waiting for the next thing to be pulled out from under them and to reduce their choices by one when they already have so few choices. So, yeah. And yet. Like you were talking about with the section with Puerto Rico. They are all, they they never give up. They are so, they persevere so much until we see that ending, which I, I, yeah. I mean, I think the ending is really, I mean, again, heartbreaking, but I think so powerful in leaving things ambiguous. Right. Because it's not like anything is going to be wrapped up neatly. Nope. Yeah. Yes, I think that in a lot of ways, I wanted more resolution. I <laughs> and I feel like that, of course, Baldwin does that in, on purpose, because what resolution would there be? And even a really dark resolution 
you know, even if he were to wrap it up where we knew that Fonny was going to be stuck forever, I think that in some ways it is the living in that sort of purgatory state that perseveres throughout the book that is so painful. Mm-hmm. It is, they don't have any agency and they don't, they're just waiting. They, there's this endless, and I mean, they're not just waiting because meanwhile, they've got to fork over insane amounts of money to continue to right. just wait. But I think that that feeling of that time is passing and we see that with the development of the child that mm-hmm. she, the child's growing and throughout we're seeing the baby that is growing in her body And yet time is passing and nothing's changing because they're continuing to have to wait in this state that seems like they're never going to get out of that Mm -hmm. state of waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh. All right. Well, let's move on to some quotations that we wanted to share. Again, we both marked several. But yeah, Ashley, what do you want to share right now? I think I'm going to go, I'm torn. (laughs) I think I'm going to go what I'm going to build off of what you said about Frank and Joseph and use one of the quotes about them. But um, this is a passage that says, Joseph is coldly, systematically stealing from the docks and Frank is stealing from the garment center and they sell the hot goods in Harlem or in Brooklyn. They don't tell us this, but we know it. They don't tell us because if things go wrong, we can't be accused of being accomplices. We cannot penetrate their silence. We must not try. Each of these men would gladly go to jail, blow away a pig, or blow up a city to save their progeny from the jaws of this democratic hell. And I just felt like that is so striking because, again, it shows that there is no road they won't cross to try to bring about change for this horrific injustice that's happened to their child. And yet we also see how, again, I mean, exactly what you said, Jen, that the system is so stacked against them that they have no choice except to break the law, but then they're going to break the law, which inevitably is going to bring more upon their families, but then they're going to have another Mm -hmm. situation where they've got to raise more money to deal with another court Mm -hmm. case. Inevitable waiting. I appreciate that stuff like bail is brought Mm -hmm. up in this because I think that a lot of times for families who have not had to deal with the prison system directly, we don't always think about how people are actually stuck in jail waiting for trial, potentially for years, if they cannot pay a bail. Yeah. And that happens all the time for people in poverty. And so I think like, I appreciated that again, there's that sense of like, I think we feel a lot of desperation as the reader for what will happen when Fonny finally gets to go to trial. But meanwhile, he is stuck and he's stuck in jail and he hasn't even been proven guilty of any kind of crime. And I think sometimes that is something in the justice system that we don't even, we who are fortunate to not be fighting against it, aren't realizing that that's happening all the time every day to people. But there are a lot of people in jail who are just being held in jail because they do not have the money to wait at home for a court date. And so I felt like like that gets explored here. And so again, like they've got to raise all this money because they have all these fees for the lawyer. They've got to pay for all this stuff related to that. But then additionally, should they be so lucky as to get a an opportunity to pay bail, they've got to have the money to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just feels impo- it's impossible. It's an impossible situation, and they're all drawn into it because they love each other and because they want to get him out, mm-hmm. and because he never should have been there in the first place. Right. So, <sighs> yeah. What about you, Jen? What's <sighs> right. your pick? Mine is from very early on. I will just say the number of book charts I have in this very small book. 
it's ridiculous. But this is when I think it's the very first time that Tish is visiting Fawny at the jail. And she says she's talking about um, the lawyers and the bondsmen and circling around like vultures. And then she says, I've never come across any shame down here except shame like mine except the shame of the hardworking black ladies who call me daughter and the shame of proud Puerto Ricans who don't understand what's happened. No one who speaks to them speaks Spanish, for example, and who are ashamed that they have loved ones in jail, but they are wrong to be ashamed. The people responsible for these jails should be ashamed. And I'm not ashamed of Fani. If anything, I'm proud. And I think again, you just see their Tish's strength, her recognition of the way this system is stacked against them, but her refusal to feel shame for it is so powerful. And yet she sees how that shame can play into the system so much. And I think very early we, that sets up so many threads of the story and is so powerful just in how few people have an understanding of the system. And then yet you see officer bell who takes full advantage of the system. He has one thing wrong, right, that happens, that that someone defends Tish and Fawny, and he's not able to wield the power that he feels that he should have. And so then he's able to manipulate the system to take revenge. And so you just see how that single police officer makes a decision because of his knowledge of the system that allows him to, you know, pull these people's lives out from under them. Yes, right. Yeah, I think that in a lot of places we see how the individuals involved do matter, Mm -hmm. but that it's because of their position in this unbelievably flawed system. It's where they are in that system, Mm -hmm. coupled with their personalities that results in all of the things that happen. Yeah, Yeah, there was a time, there's one place in the book where she describes Officer Bell as walking, walking like John Wayne. And I just, yeah, I, I wanted to explore that as well. And I won't go down that that rapid trail, because I know we've already been talking for a while. But yeah, I just think this, there's this mythos behind everything that is also, that Baldwin is also illuminating through the book in a powerful way. So yeah. All right. Well, we are going to move on to some pairings. Ashley, what's a book that you think would make a good pairing for this one? So one that I wanted to share that I found really powerful and think has a lot of similarities is Terry Jones's An American Marriage. And this one explores a young couple Celestial and Roy, and they are in the South. First, I should say, I have not read this in a while, so some of the details are a little bit fuzzy. But what I remember is that her family is already relatively wealthy, and so she has grown up with that comfort. Roy's family, not in that situation, but he's, like, coming into – he's a young executive. So, you know, they both feel like they're on this pathway of burgeoning into financial success – living the American dream. And so you see that happening. She's an artist and he is an executive that has, and he has this big idea for what he's going to do. But there's already, he feels a lot of like skepticism on her family side. So you kind of see those dynamics, but then their entire life gets derailed because Roy is arrested and sentenced to 12 years in jail for a crime that Celestial knows that he has not committed. And that all happens pretty quickly in the story. So then it's the unpacking of 
those years. And I think what I found so striking about this one is it is really looking at the long-term impact of injustice within the legal system and what that does to individual people. And so you just see how, of course, there's a profound strain on their marriage. They were newly married when he gets put in jail. 12 years is a long time. We see with Bonnie and if Beale Street could talk, we see it here in American Marriage, how hard it is for Roy in jail. But we also see how hard it is for their partners, so in this case for Celestial, to continue to support Roy throughout this journey of him being in jail. And she knows he's wrongly incarcerated, but it is not only him who is suffering. Right. And so I just feel like, so, you know, things get complicated. She has support from a childhood friend, Andre, who she's known all along, who's there to support her while Roy is in jail. And I mean, things get complicated. And it's because of all these things that are completely outside of their control that lead to a situation where he's stuck. And again, her family does have some agency. So they're continuing to try to bring about change, to get him out earlier, like all that stuff. So there is, there are these things that are in place. But again, it's like we see, and if Beale Street could talk, it's both hope mixed with despair. Mm -hmm. And so they're continuing to try to get him out. And yet, meanwhile, her life is continuing. And it's continuing, but then she's trying to continue to support him. And so I just feel like it's, again, a lot of the complexities. And because there's a bit of a difference between his family and her family, we also see how having money and having some clout, like how all those things make a difference. And so, you know, we really get into some of the layers of life for black people in the American South and how there are these different layers and yet all of it is still stacked in these like really deeply entrenched injustices. So yeah, I thought, so this is Tyree Jones's An American Marriage and I thought it was phenomenal. Amazing. And really, and really haunting. I mean, that's another one. Your discussion of that. Yeah. Just made me want to revisit it because it's yeah it's been a while but it definitely I thought of that several times while I was reading this one yeah it really stuck with me yeah that's what I mean I just feel like it's a haunting it's been a while for me too so it's been years ago but I remember it vividly I mean I just think it is a story that really captures again that there are people at the center of these systemic problems and what it looks like for those people so what about you Jen what's your pairing Yeah, so I am going to recommend Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. And I will say we talked about this back in episode 76 as a book club pick. So if you're interested, you can read more. And this is a nonfiction book that I will just say is one of my favorite pieces of nonfiction ever because I found it to be so powerful, so illuminating. I've read it multiple times and every time new details struck harder. So Stevenson is a black attorney who created the Equal Justice Initiative. And he works primarily with people on death row or with children who have been sentenced to life in prison for various reasons. And what he does in the book, so he follows one story through the book of Walter McMillan, who is a man who was put on death row, a black man who was put on death row. Very clearly, he is innocent. I'm convinced of his innocence. And I think Stevenson does a great job of proving just how little question there is that he is innocent through the book and of Stevenson's efforts to get him released and to prove his innocence. 
And then he alternates that with chapters where he is looking at different cases that illuminate horrible parts of the criminal justice system and just how he is trying to combat those. And so it is a, I will say it is a difficult read. It is in some ways a hopeful read because Stevenson is working so hard to overcome some of these injustices. And yet you see also how it's not something that just one person or one organization can fix, but he is doing what he can to fix it. And so it is, yeah, I think it's one of those books everyone should read. I think it is examining the system that lies at the heart of If Beale Street Could Talk. And I think that these are great pairings just because then you understand the system from, like you were saying, Ashley, for, just from these different lenses, right? So, yeah. So it, it is a nonfiction, the book that I absolutely think would be a great pairing for this work of fiction. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that is another one that has stayed with me and it's really impactful. And I do think, like you said, Jen, I mean, I found it absolutely heart-wrenching. And I think that is exactly what you're supposed to feel. And I remember at the time thinking, if we can't read this, then we're not looking at the heart of our justice system in the U.S. And if we can't look at it, then there's a problem. And so I feel like he does that really well. But I agree with you that I think what is also remarkable to me is that one person really does make a difference. I mean, Brian Stevenson is a phenomenal person. And I think just reading and seeing that like someone actually can make a difference. And I think even though there's a lot of really hard things in that book, I did find it so inspiring because he's just such an inspiring person. And it is remarkable to be like, oh my gosh, you know, you really can make a change. I mean, there are there are things that he's actually changed. And so, and that his institute does, you know, so I just feel like that is nice in the face of looking at something that is so broken. It is also helpful to see that there are real people doing real things that can bring about change and that sometimes it's hard to see that when you're looking at the ugliness of it. It's hard to see that change can happen. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's a nonfiction book that just is acknowledging people's humanity. I think the way he tells people's stories focuses on the injustice that's been done to them, but also on who they are as people. And so I think that's one thing that makes it stick with you is because it's not this objective examination. You feel their stories, you, you, get a sense of who they are, which makes then the objective parts all the more powerful. So Ashley, I know you had wanted to mention Nick Stone's Dear Justice. Yeah, I just I started to put that as my pairing with and we were just kind of talking about how this one's very much written for adults. And Dear Justice is definitely a YA pick. But Nick Stone's Dear Justice is the second in the Dear Martin series. And it focuses on Quan. And he so Justice is the main character in Dear Martin. For those of you who have read that one, this one is really exploring Quan, who has had a very different background than Justice and grew up in a much harder set of circumstances. And so he is being held awaiting trial. And he has entered a not guilty plea for shooting a police officer. And he's awaiting trial, but he's being held in a holding cell. And so I think that what we see that's similar is circumstances where, again, he hasn't yet been convicted. We actually know that he did not commit the crime, but then it's it's complicated for him to, like, prove that he didn't commit it. Then he has to prove someone else did. And so it also gets into some of that, like, that the dangers are not just within the justice system, but also within 
being on the streets and what it can look like to try to get if you get yourself off, but then you get yourself killed, you haven't really helped yourself. And so it it really gets into some of that. Um, But I mean, I just thought it was a brilliant book, but it does pair nicely. And especially if you're looking for something that's appropriate for younger readers that explores what the justice system can look like, and also things like coercion and stuff like that, and how people wind up sometimes saying something that they know is untrue based on the advice they're given and why that happened. I mean, all that gets explored in there. So again, it's been a little while. I think I read that pretty quickly after it came out, but I do feel like it's a great fit on the YA level. Nick Stone is always fantastic with her exploration of character and looking at the nuances of situation. And you really see that with Dear Justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great recommendation. All right, well, let's wrap this up with our bookish hearts. Ashley, how many bookish hearts would you give this book? I'd say five for me. Same. What about you, Jen? Same. Yeah, so powerful. Yeah. All right, well, we are going to really switch gears again and finish with our Give Me One. Today's topic is preferred hot beverage. Ashley, what about you? Let's give me one. I think I'm going to go with I really love chai, so I fix that pretty much every day. So I'm a big fan of, I do drink coffee in the mornings also, but then I have chai tea. What about you, Jen? Mine would be coffee. And for a long time, I was not a coffee drinker. I drank soda. And then in an attempt to cut down on soda, I started drinking coffee. And then I was just drinking lots of soda and lots of coffee, which is not (laughs) healthy. But anyway, now I love coffee. And that's just my morning routine, especially on the weekends. I love to curl up with a couple, couple cups of coffee and read some books and just be lazy. It's, it's, yeah, it's really nice. (laughs) I will say that in the time that I have known Jen, she was not a coffee drinker. Mm -hmm. And I was always like, how do you not drink coffee? I mean, people who teach high school, I feel like like I'm always amazed by people who do not have large quantities Mm -hmm. of caffeine before walking into that first class, but Jen did not. Yeah. And, but alas, I remember one day when you started drinking coffee, I was like, what is happening? Yes. Big big change (laughs) for me. (laughs) All right, everyone. Well, if you read this and are listening, and it is before March 27th, and you would like to join our book club chat on Instagram, feel free to reach out and let us know. And we would be happy to add you to that discussion. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what everyone thought of this one. So again, if you are hearing this before March 27th, there is still time to join our book club chat online. We have those every month. Every month we have a buddy read chat and that's always focusing on a YA book and then a book club chat about the book we discussed in our episode. So yeah, thank you everyone for listening and feel free to respond on Instagram or to send us an email. If you want to talk about this book that way, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnabridgedPod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.